This is day four of this July 2021 seven-day session. Back to the teachings of the Korean Zen master Kusan Sunim from uh, the book The Way of Korean Zen. I'm going to uh, skip up to chapter six, which is titled Discourses from a Winter Retreat. And this is called First Lecture. We could say Teisho. I venture to ask the assembly, all of you, with a pure, undefiled, original nature, have you completely awakened to it or not? If by chance you have penetrated the profound meaning of the patriarchs, then say something. You may know the unchanging nature by seeing bamboos and pines in the snow. Do you understand? Within snow, which is always in flux, stand the bamboos and the pines within change, changelessness. Many offers a verse, with the cessation of defilements, there is no high or low place. That is the defilements, for example, the defilements of dividing the world into high and low. The pure original face cannot be assailed. In ice, flames appear. The bright light is all-pervasive. The subtle dharma limitless as the sands along the Ganges, adorns the entire world. And then he goes on. Although many rivers converge in the sea, in the end their taste is one and the flow of their waters comes to an end. Likewise, defilements and false thinking endlessly flow from the conditioned mind. Due to this we suffer beneath the wheel of birth and death. But when the mind from which defilements and false thinking flow is completely cut off, the high and the low disappear. Common and accomplished beings vanish. Originally, all is equal. Therefore, the pure original face cannot be assailed. Of course, face is our nature. Our original nature cannot be tainted, diminished. The pure original nature that is able to hear this sound 
and see this staff cannot be assailed. It does not undergo the suffering of birth and death. It is not stained by defilements. And this is this is what awakening reveals that no matter how many afflictions we have, no matter how um, unpleasant or quarrelsome or unhappy we are, still within that, within that mind-body complex, there is this original, luminous nature I'm afraid that for most people who hear this, they just sort of roll off, roll off the mind. But to to confirm it, to confirm that there is only this Buddha nature. It's not that this this original nature is somehow buried uh, under all these uh, personal afflictions that we have. But the, the afflictions themselves are not apart from, not, they're not separate from this essential mind. All the affairs of the world are just like dreams. With a single stroke of a knife, completely sever all concerns. Only search for awakening. Not only must you discard all worldly fame, wealth, glory, comfort, learning, and cleverness, but the Buddhas as well. That is, the enlightened ones, our predecessors, even that we don't want to be attached to, even those, you must finish with it all. This uh, image of a, of a knife, a stroke of a knife, is a, a favorite one uh, in in the Japanese Zen, as it is in Korean Zen, apparently, uh, it can be misleading. There's nothing we we don't need to really. We don't need to address our attachments and then cut through them. The cutting is an, it's an imperfect analogy. It means whenever we are, whenever we we detach, whenever we um, disengage from our thoughts about ourselves. Uh, that is the cutting. R- redirecting our attention to the breath of the koan, that's the cutting. Because all those attachments, they have no roots to them. 
it's only um, by attending to them, it's only by um, engaging with them, involving with these mental attachments that we uh, sustain them. Without our attention, uh, they wither. And he quotes, quotes what it says here is an, an ancient master once said, the bright light of the mind has never darkened. From ages past to the present, it has been the brilliant way. When entering this door, discard intellectual knowledge. That's the end of this master's uh, quote. And then Kusan Sunim says, This bright spiritual light, which is able to hear the sound and see the staff, has not darkened even once. It's, it, it is eternal, this light. This light that everyone has in common. For this reason, it is the way that is eternally radiant. The way, the Tao. Therefore, when entering this door, discard intellectual knowledge. It's good uh, advice to people coming to Sashim. They show up, the suitcase at the front door. You could have uh, the greeter say, discard intellectual knowledge. Another uh, feature of the discipline we uh, maintain in Sashin is uh, no reading. That this is why. In Sashin, we read ourselves. And even that is not quite precisely accurate. The we are read by ourselves. We see ourselves. After practicing for a while, you may come to think that you know something. Then you start conceptualizing. For example, if you've been uh, working on Mu, you may think, that which says Mu, isn't that it? Those working on what is this may think, that which says what is this, isn't that it? This approach is wrong. Therefore, avoid speculative thinking. Really, uh, what, what people who are working on a koan need to eventually understand is it's you don't we're not trying to come up with an answer you're not trying to come up with an answer you're just questioning there's no answer as such like a sentence or several sentences it's not something that can be figured out 
and if you can if you can uh, think you have it if if what you have is words a description or an explanation that's not it it can't be figured out it doesn't have to be because it can be embodied embodying this mu or this embodying it is infinitely better than talking about it. It's not it's not about coming up with answers. So it's, it's kind of a subtle point but a very important one. Just be the questioning. Be the breath. So it's more being than answering. You must possess truthfulness and sincerity in order to practice correctly. Yeah, this word sincerity, it's, it's, a, it's a really a rich word. Uh, it may get past us. Um, to, be, to practice sincerely really means to put our whole mind into it, not part of our mind, not to split the mind between the practice we're working on and other things. It's one with one's whole heart. That's sincerity. And for the longest time, uh, we won't be wholehearted about it. We'll, we will uh, see our attention split between the practice, maybe 60%, and then other odds and ends, another 40%, or further fracturing in there. But through all this sitting, uh, day after day, we get that percentage up, where eventually it can be 90 and beyond, more and more uh, fully absorbed in the in the practice, more and more sincere. It it leaves that kind of uh, increased attention on the practice leaves you feeling more sincere about it. You realize that earlier you weren't completely sincere because you had other things floating around in the mind. To practice simply because others are doing so is just imitation. You will never achieve anything in that way. I think of uh, Yaza. Um, I spent my share of time uh, just showing up for Yaza um, because others are doing so and I didn't want to be seen missing. And um, No, it's not. It's not nothing like just coming in before you, because you feel compelled to do so. But at least you're sitting. You're not fast asleep in bed or tossing and turning. You're, you're doing your sitting. And if you have pain to contend with, then it kind of forces you to get concentrated. So it's not, I would say it's not a waste just because your, your motivation isn't so pure. 
anything to to keep logging more and more hours of sitting is going to be uh, purifying the mind, purifying one's one's intention, one's aspiration. I mean, if you're doing a halfway decent effort at it, certainly you can't just be sitting and and um, daydreaming. That really doesn't do much. He says, you must truly awaken in order to be freed from the suffering of birth and death. This um, this pairing of the word birth and death is uh, something I've never seen except in Buddhist texts. Um, normally we think of uh, the pairing of life and death. But it's usually birth and death in Buddhism uh, because it, it, it's referring to the wheel of suffering where we suffer to a larger or greater or, greater or lesser extent through our lives different intermittently worse and finally uh, the body passes and then uh, we're reborn uh, to repeat the whole cycle. That's that's the teaching of uh, rebirth. So birth and death means this whole this whole wheel. Knowledge and conceptualization are not appropriate. When you investigate the koan and intend to awaken to your great original nature, you must be like a hen hatching eggs. Think about how much effort the hen must exert in order to successfully hatch eggs. From dawn to dusk, she constantly pecks and searches for food. Imagine how hungry she gets while sitting on the eggs all day long. Remember, uh, Kusan, as a youth, was uh, grew up on a farm. If she frequently leaves to eat or drink, only half of them will hatch properly. The rest will rot. While the hen is hatching her eggs, she does not just sit quietly. She moves the eggs around with her feet in order to evenly distribute the heat. Only in this way will the chicks hatch successfully. How How do those hens know to do that? Again, mind. So much bigger than us and our plans and our learning. Bigger than what we learn. How does the 
How does our breath know to come in and out of the lungs ceaselessly, around the clock, on and on and on, year after year? Or the blood to circulate, the heart to beat? We didn't learn that. He's using this as an analogy for how we need to uh, actively engage with the koan and not just um, in, a, in a mechanical way, just like a zombie, just, just repeat the, the same words. Uh, ideal, ideally, it's an in investigating. Investigating meaning, not analytically, of course, but uh, really uh, looking, peering, looking into, questioning in a questioning way. What is it? What is moo? He says, it is the same for somebody practicing meditation. Whether you are investigating what is this, Moo, or the cypress in the courtyard, famous koan in the Mumonkan, the practice will not mature if you just hold the koan motionless. If you just watch it repeating, what is this, what is this, then you would be like a hen trying to hatch her eggs without moving them. You cannot awaken in this manner. You must be like the hen who moves her eggs around. So, yeah, questioning. Questioning is an active thing. And then, but then I often hear from people who say, well, you know, I have to be honest. I don't feel a great deal of questioning. And, and, and uh, I've tried, and uh, the questioning just doesn't take hold of me. Okay, yeah, that's common enough. Uh, you don't want to make it a contrivance to fabricate something that uh, is not is not really there so you 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 just do your best from now now and then to uh, see if you can stimulate uh, some some wonder at this the koan that you're working on even if you're not questioning uh, your engagement with the practice must be active that is vital uh, sincere uh, not not static yes we're sitting we're, we're developing stillness but it should be a, a vibrant stillness and that's where the stick also can help the, the stick keeps us from or helps anyway helps keep us from sinking into the a real kind of a trance
several paragraphs here that I'm going to skip over. Here's he, he pulls out another really uh, classic uh, analogy. You must also be like a cat trying to catch a mouse. Watch the look of a cat that is trying to catch a mouse at the foot of a stone wall. While slinking along at the base of the wall, it keeps its eyes firmly fixed on the hole where the mouse entered. At a place far away from the hole, it then sits silently in hiding. Its eyes continue to stare piercingly at the hole while waiting for the mouse to come out. At such a time, even if a person, a chicken or a dog, goes near the cat, it takes no notice of their passing and continues to watch the mouse hole. If the mouse appears for even an instant, like a flash of lightning, the cat leaps and grabs it. If even a cat proceeds so mindfully when trying to catch a mouse, how much more so should a person pursue awakening when practicing meditation? I would say maybe a better word than mindfully is, is so concentratedly Furthermore, you must practice with a feeling of urgency, as though you were trying to extinguish a fire burning on your head. That's another classic uh, analogy Zen Master Dogen, among many others, used. In such a situation, would you stop to ponder, hmm, is this heat due to fire, or is it really burning or not? Is there anybody present here who would experiment and let the fire burn for a while to see how well it burns? Under such circumstances, without thinking, you would immediately brush your hand over your head in order to get rid of the fire. You should cultivate meditation with the same sense of urgency. And then... I can hear people now in their thoughts thinking, well, geez, I don't have that sense of urgency. Great. Where am I going? This is, this is so, it's, it's, undercutting our efforts when we compare ourselves to others or to this imaginary person. I think, I think comparing oneself to others in Sashin is, 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 uh, is a real hellish state, and I speak from plenty of experience at that in my early years. If it, if it if it could inspire one to step up one's efforts, okay, it wouldn't be so bad, but all too often it just uh, sort of stops one in one's tracks. You know, in, in uh, popular Buddhism, they have these hells, the hell of 
flaming swords or boiling kilns, the hell of this and the hell of that. I would nominate comparing oneself to others to go into that hellish, those hellish realms. One is so divided when we're comparing ourselves to others. So, okay, so some people tend to do this. Uh, How do you get out of that? Well, you just apply yourself with greater vigor to the practice you're working on. You don't have to expel the comparing thoughts. You just, again, just redirect the attention and with greater vigor, more more sincerity to the practice you're working on. And then those comparing thoughts will uh, evaporate or certainly diminish to a great extent. We're not making war on our thoughts. And then he steps back and kind of looks at the whole picture, the big picture. To live long would be to live for a hundred years. I mean, in other words, that would be a long life, a hundred years. A short life is over in the time it takes to inhale and exhale a single breath. A hundred years of life depends upon a single breath. For life stops when respiration ceases. Can you afford to wait for a hundred years when you do not know how soon death will come? You may die after having eaten a good breakfast in the morning. You may die in the afternoon after a good lunch. Some die during sleep. You may die in the midst of going here and there. No one can determine the time of death. Therefore, you must awaken before you die. He's obviously um, striving to um, to inspire his students to um, not take anything for granted, not take this life for granted. And so to make one's strongest effort while we can, while we can. When we're young, we tend to think uh, we just have all kinds of time ahead of us. And as the years pass, as the decades pass, uh, we find that we often can't practice with the same um, comfort, for sure, as the body becomes more painful. We have to compromise with posture.
we lose uh, some some stamina. My, one of my all-time favorite passages about the uh, the unavoidable law of impermanence uh, comes from uh, the Tibetan master Milarepa. Affairs and business will drag on forever, so lay them down and practice now the Dharma. If you think tomorrow is the time to practice, suddenly you find that life has slipped away. Who can tell when death will come? He also said, All worldly pursuits have but one avoidable and inevitable end, which is sorrow. Acquisitions end in dispersion, buildings in destruction, meetings in separation, births in death. Knowing this, one should from the very first renounce acquisition and heaping up and building and meeting and faithful to an eminent teacher set about realizing the truth. One unavoidable and inevitable end, which is sorrow. The great uh, uh, Buddhist monk Shantideva said, That which is not dear to me will not be. That which is dear to me will not be. And I will not be and all will not be. Acquisitions end in dispersion. As any householder knows who moves to a new house, Buildings in destruction. We see it already underway, gradually. Early signs of, of this facility wearing this relentless march toward of entropy, destruction, decay. Meetings in separation. Meetings, of course, meaning... Uh, Partnerships, marriages, uh, um, friendship, family, and in separation. And then he uh, he says, "Look at the sea. Not only." When there is wind, do waves arise? Even when the sea is calm, 
Waves are rising and falling thousands of times. Again, flux, the flux that is. Not everything, not just everything around us, but our own body minds in flux, change. A defiled person will call this world a sea of suffering. An awakened one will call it a Buddha world. At that time, the 10,000 things will be transformed into the 10,000 subtle functions. That is the, the amazing, in, in, inexpressible, incomprehensible, unfathomable workings of everything. Everything around us our own bodies, again, our hearts, breath. For an enlightened person, it is simply all illuminated. For a defiled person, it is simply all defiled. All is arising from your own mind. The Buddha world arises from your own mind. Its transformation into the sea of suffering, likewise, arises from your own mind. I, uh, these days I will often, when uh, starting an introductory workshop, congratulate people for having come to learn meditation. And it could be any kind of meditation because uh, it is our experience of the world is determined as much by the mind as by circumstances and conditions. We have the power by how we how we use or misuse the mind to transform things, transform our families, our work, the natural world around us, our whole experience of reality. Meditation then is the most intelligent thing anyone can undertake. <laughs> For things are things because of mind. And then we go into in the last few minutes, uh, second second day lecture, Keisho, make it. He begins, since we have entered this meditation retreat, two weeks have gone by. Now only 75 days remain. <laughs> it never fails to draw a laugh. <laughs> You hear one shoe drop and then you just wait. Truly, where is the subtle principle? If you awaken to the Dharma of one mind, simultaneously you will completely penetrate the thousand kinds of concentration and the countless subtle fundamental principles. He who has reached it, say something. What is the Dharma of one mind?
the sufferings of rebirth within the ocean of birth and death, as well as the happiness of the sublime Dharmadhatu appearing brilliantly clear before your eyes do not come from outside. Okay, same theme. They are also not given to us by anyone else. You do not have to endure sufferings because someone else gave them to you. Neither does somebody else grant you happiness. They are created and experienced by yourself alone. You have to endure sufferings because you created them yourself. Likewise, you experience happiness because you have created it yourself. So this is the law of karma. In other words, he's using other words for that. No one can ever prove the law of karma in any empirical way. But uh, believing in karma, the law of causation, that there are no accidents, uh, has, has a, a way of really enriching uh, one's life and, and, uh, and also in uh, enabling one to deal with change, uh, maybe especially painful change. It, uh, it, if we don't, if we, if we can accept what he's saying, uh, we don't have to endure sufferings because someone else gave them to you, uh, then it, it puts us in the driver's seat. It empowers us. Okay. Maybe I set this in motion 25 lifetimes ago. Now I have the chance to write things. I have the chance to square the accounts. It's always worked for me, that line of thinking, when painful things have happened. Actually, that's what Sashin is. It's... uh, it's balancing the account sheet. The pain we experience, whether it's physical or emotional pain, uh, if we can, if we can uh, move through it with, with grace, with, with acceptance, uh, then we are expiating uh, painful karma. And how do we move through it with grace? Uh, of course, through the, through the zazen, through the sitting, through the returning again and again to the practice. Then we're, we're really riding the waves. Sashin is, is, is like being on a on a turbulent sea at, t- at times it gets calm at times but it can be pretty turbulent and then uh, we just have to ride those waves how do we ride them through oneness with the practice don't take my word for it see what makes see what works better becoming one with the with the practice or thinking about yourself If time is dragging, periodically you feel it's just session's never going to end, well, 
there too. Compare thinking about that versus plunging more thoroughly into the practice. Time is a is a is a is a construct of this thinking mind. If we're not thinking, if we're beyond thought, there's no time. Our time is up now and we'll recite the four vows. <laughs>